Hello and welcome to the Professional Practice Podcasts with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today we'll be looking at the issue of automation in a number of aspects of architecture and construction. And to do that, I'm joined by Robert Klaschka, Founder and Principal Consultant of Everbuilt. That's www.evrbilt.com. Founding member of the Construction Verification Initiative and author of BIM in small practices. So uh, welcome, Robert. Thank you very much indeed for your time. So look, the opening question, as is always the case in these things, is just for you to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you studied, how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so um, I started off interior architecture. Um, That was at Kent Institute of Art and Design, which I think is now part of University of Canterbury. Then went to work for one of my tutors in um, fit out for about a year. That was uh, Seville Peach Gents. After that, I had the good fortune um, to be asked to go and work for Richard Horden. And so I worked for him for a year. Um, It's quite an exciting time because uh, I was getting to do what I wanted to do, which was uh, work on real uh, architectural work. The job that I was on uh, finished, uh, went went on hold and Hordens didn't have any more work for me. And I thought I was going to have to go back to doing commercial fit out again, but Apparently not once you once you're into the into the family. Um, so I then worked for David Morley Architects for I think around about three or four years, and at the end of that uh, went into practice with a friend of mine, Richard Markland, who now runs a, uh, his own practice. Um, and we worked together for seven or eight years, then um, decided to go our separate ways. I think primarily because I was interested in technology he was very much going down the sort of design architect route um, and and is still doing so very successfully i think what were you doing at morley's like an outdoor technician or what what kind of thing in in effect i was uh yeah i certainly i started off as a technician i was doing similar sort of work uh to uh, to the part twos when i uh, switched from from hordens to morley's the reason i chose morley's and it was a great time of life. I got an offer at Chipperfields and I got off an offer at John McCasland. So, you know, it was great, uh, great choices. Um, but Morley's were the only people who were offering uh, work on a building that was going to imminently get built. And so uh, uh, then the job that I had worked on went on hold and I didn't get to see it come out of the ground. Basically, I ended up, broadly speaking, running that project under the supervision of an associate so very quickly, did you find it was a, a drawback that you hadn't studied architecture? If I'm honest, I had a bit of a chip on my shoulder about it. Part of the reason that Rich and I um, went and did our own thing was because there were four of us who I think were going to be, um, two, two of which were going to be promoted to associates. And it wasn't Richard and me, it was the other two. Uh, I guess maybe there was an element of uh, childishness about it on my part decided to go and do our own thing, um, which I I don't know, I I wonder whether I would have been better off staying in the in the fold. Um, At the time, David offered me a a sort of, it was a position of um, sort of director of technology in the practice. And I think in hindsight, maybe I'd have had more fun and worked on more interesting buildings than I did when I went to work, uh, work uh, for myself. We're talking about what the beginning of the millennium 2000, that kind of period or earlier? Yeah, that's right. So Rich and I started what was then Markland Klaschka in 2001. And uh, it it was a really exciting time. I think I would say 
we were a bit naive in that we were both what I suppose we would describe as diligent, focused, you know, trying to act in uh, in the client's um, best interests and believed that that alone would uh, bring work in through the door, which was, uh, you know, <laughs> it's complete rubbish. It's, uh, it's network, network, network. Because <laughs> um, yeah, when you think about 20 years ago, I know the kids of today won't believe us, but basically technology was pretty much in its infancy, although absolutely. the aspirations were there. So you were quite an early adopter of not necessarily BIM, but working with, with technology. So what, yeah. what got you started in that? And, and, it, and it, was, with it. it was BIM, in fact. It, it wasn't called BIM at the time, but uh, when we started uh, Markland Klashka, we basically decided that we were going to give it a go. Morley's had at the time were using Vectorworks, but had just started to get some copies of MicroStation because of a job that they were working on. It was a client requirement. And so we had some exposure to Triforma and decided that that was what we would try out. And so, yeah, at that point, we referred to it as full building model, which seems reasonably clumsy, but perhaps uh, slightly less bad than BIM, which it became. So um, how would you define BIM then? Well, we decided that uh, that we were going to run that job um, using MicroStation Triformer. It might even have might have been the first version of Bentley Architecture had appeared at that point in time. So there was a big component of it was um, uh, was obviously coordinating and producing drawings from models, much like the software today does. But actually, in possibly a more sort of voluntary sense, we uh, were also helping the, the contractor by providing some quantities from uh, from the model. Um, if you care to Google it, you will find that there is an article that was in Building Magazine, I think in 2006, um, by me called, and no one wants my quantities. Um, and it's basically me complaining about the lack of engagement in BIM software from quantity surveyors of the time, cost controllers, I suppose. But it's also the fact that you know, when if you're talking 20 odd years ago, part of the problem with BIM was the fact that they were, it wasn't across the entire industry, was it? So, you know, oh, not at all. Yeah. So that interoperability idea of what BIM really represents you know, was, was confronted by the fact that contractor very often didn't even have a computer. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And what I would say, though, is in many ways, um, there is a theme that started then in my career, which was that BIM, first and foremost, you should, uh, you should use it for your own benefits and see how it fits with your model. If you're not supporting the things that uh, clients already like about you and employ you for, um, then it's kind of yeah, maybe it's more of a distraction than a benefit. And certainly I continued with that theme in, in the BIM for small practices or small practice case studies. So I should say I didn't write the whole thing. I edited that book. Just to bring us a bit further forward, I hate to go over painful old ground, but uh, <laughs> about five years ago, your studio, Studio Clashka, wound up. Uh, and just it before was eight, that, eight, in fact, eight, eight years was it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Poss yeah, of course it was. Yeah, yes. possibly yes. nearly nine actually. This, oh, this October. Yeah, time flies when you're having fun. The, <laughs> um, but just before that, you'd written that you said we are very much a technology-focused practice, which obviously kind of maybe doesn't board well for the subject of this conversation. Mm. Um, but but just talk us through um, whether the technology was part of the problem, or whether you were too much of an early adopter, or whatever. 
I think that there was an element of both of those things. One thing that I was very excited by uh, the the early stages, and you know, I was well known in the industry. I'm still reasonably uh, well known in the BIM circles. Um, um, I had the benefit of being a bit of a figurehead for small practice at that point. I was um, involved in some of the early discussions where Mervyn Richards was looking to get funding for the BS 1192 series of standards, um, which really, um, that that was what sat behind the government's BIM mandate. And then... Is that the um, collaboration? It's, it's certainly, yeah, that, that was about bringing BIM to, uh, to all the members of the team, how you work together, um, protocols for working together, and, and, uh, and the sort of standards that underlie that. I felt very positive about that, um, mainly because, you know, we were small, we were an early adopter and we were, uh, you know, we effectively when you when you're making your own systems, you, it's easy to tailor them to, uh, to fit the standards. And we did so. I thought that that would be a real selling point, but it it really didn't prove to be that way. I think that it was early in the day and BIM was generally being used on bigger projects. And ultimately, we fell back into the position that it was um, something that we were trying to do to support our own internal workflows. You know, gen- genuinely, we did think that it allowed us to do more things, work, work in the way that the practice wanted to work. But at the same time, it didn't open the door uh, to us in, uh, in the way that I thought that it might Ironically, I uh, I was at um, Next Build uh, last week, and there were a number of architects who were complaining about how, uh, and these are uh, what what by any standards you would describe as big architects, um, were complaining that the standards were too co- uh, too complex and um, contractors were changing them too much, and other people. In many ways, I I saw an element of that, it felt a little bit like the standards were there, but on every project, people wanted to change the standards a little bit. And that, uh, maybe I'm being unfair, there was an element of it that felt like it was a defensive strategy to stop the young upstarts coming in. You know, it's it's the same. There's always a battle between um, smaller practices and bigger practices, whatever industry you're in. Yeah, absolutely. On that, I was reading the latest NBS construction report. I mean, they used to do a very straightforward BIM-centred uh, um, report, but now it's a much broader thing. And if you can navigate past the horrible 1970s graphics on their website, <laughs> um, it says that 55% of small organisations, 15 staff or fewer, which I think is about 70-odd percent of architects, by the way, they say that they're less likely to have adopted BIM than previously and 10% of these say that they never will take up things. Mm. What's, what's, your, what's your thoughts? Is it, is it horses for courses or do you think that they're missing out? I think that things have got um, more complicated and more expensive and maybe the narrative of needing to adopt BIM because your client wants you to on a, or on a particular project has taken hold. You know, personally, I still use uh, now Revit on a, uh, on a daily basis for um, for my work in measured survey, and there's a learning curve, but there are a lot of benefits to it. And I think if companies um, and practices are capable of um, of going back to this question of 
can this support my workflow? Can it make me work more efficiently? You know, ultimately, when we were doing it, the reason for doing it was because we felt that it was freeing up time to spend more time designing and less time managing, drawing workflow. And, you know, I, I don't really see that that has changed. I can see how smaller practices are less likely to have clients asking for BIM deliverables. And certainly, I do a lot of work in London still um, and work for some of the bigger main contractors. But one of the interesting things is that where I've been looking for more local contacts to me on the south coast in the Solent area, all the evidence is that the more regional contractors um, don't do BIM so frequently. Um, and they're very much driven by by clients. You know, if it's a big, if it's a health client, then probably they will um, want BIM to be used. Um, but equally, there's a there's a good chance that they're going to lose those jobs unless they're too small to be of interest. They're going to lose those jobs to more national scale contractors who have those resources. So I think maybe it's a sort of slow percolation out of London that is happening. What that means um, from my perspective is there are opportunities because, um, you know, where people do adopt, at the end of the day, if you use it for your own benefits, even if nobody else is, wants to use it on the job, then, you know, that's uh, it's still going to work for you. Just to finish off on the BIM stuff before we move on more broadly, um, that thing we, you mentioned before about collaborative working, obviously that was the essence of what BIM was. So even though you've focused on using it for your own purposes and your own, and your own advantage, hmm. there is some notion that, you know, the more people do it, uh, that there can be clash detection, there can be all these you know, wonderful hmm. uh, benefits that accrue. But obviously we're not living in the most collaborative times. Um, hmm. And I just wondered whether, you know, the, the technology can facilitate collaborative working or it's the other way around you have to be collaborative in order it's a chicken and egg conversation really, isn't it i think uh yeah the technology is an enabler but the the uh the human beings have to want to do it and i think that uh, as you say that varies from project to project but one of the things that is interesting is that position and coordination obviously now i'm working in the uh, measured survey and scan to bim arena and coordination and positioning of models that are produced by different team members um, and the way that the, that coordination um, uh, is either maintained or fails to be maintained and i would say most of the time it fails to be maintained at some of the big contractual barriers for example, handover from design to uh, main contractor, quite often you'll find that the positional relationship between projects breaks at that point, not in a massive way, but in a way which then starts to prevent you using some of the technologies out there for you. It's interesting, obviously, as a, I suppose I would probably be referred to by many as a as a sort of tier three type subcontractor now. Um, while a measured survey has a great deal that it can do to benefit a project, there's certainly not uh, the engagement generally, um, in my experience, uh, with measured survey into the planning of, um, of BIM and coordination and the collaboration process. And, uh, and jobs are, um, they, they suffer from that. Well, look, since, since we've moved on to that, I think it's worthwhile you just laying out your company um, ever built. So just give us a couple of sentences. We'll come back to it about what it is that you actually are doing now. 
So this is quite an interesting one. Obviously, um, in between uh, killing off Studio Klashka and uh, what became Studio Klashka and starting Everbuilt, I worked for um, a big national surveyor specializes in below ground surveys um, called SUMO. It was a bit of a refuge. I had to put myself back together after the, uh, the Studio Klashka experience. When I started Everbuilt after leaving Sumo, my intention was to do something more consultancy based in the measured survey um, context, perhaps the peripheral activities that I'm doing with construction verification initiative and with this digital survey, uh, digital site survey strategy. The reality was I started the company up and a few months later got a call from one of my clients at Sumo <laughs> with a 20,000 square meter measured survey. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't have consultancy work pouring in through the door, so it would have been daft not to do it. The other element of things is I'm really interested in doing more with estates data. And the reality is that if you go to a university or a, or a healthcare estate and say, can you give me some of your data? Or I've got some interesting ideas. They're going to use some four letter words and put the phone down. So, you know, the, the, the entry point to that is, um, is collecting estates data for those uh, bodies. Those institutional clients, they're friendly, they're open to having conversation um, and they generally don't cut you down um, if you've got uh, some ideas about something that might be helpful. Um, it's, always, it's always nice to be an external consultant to a university. Yep. If, if you're in a university and you have ideas that might be useful, they, they do cut you down. <laughs> just just uh, because you, you've mentioned construction verification a couple of times, mm. um, and I suppose that ties in with the next question about photogrammetry generally. But, but do you want to just explain? what it means to enable construction verification what, what yeah. do you do that's a recurring theme you've you've uh, asked me before whether i um uh being a, a, a too early adopter um uh, in my in initial work with construction verification started when i was at sumo and we got a little bit of work in but it didn't take off like i expected it to primarily what it entails is um collecting data either during construction or at the end of a project and using that to check the accuracy of the site work against models and broadly speaking um, the construction verification initiative is focused on um, more software enablement of that process that's not to say that it hasn't happened um, in the past you know you um, you always have uh, surveyors on site who are doing things like sort of checking the you know, key points on structural frames and that sort of thing, setting out grid lines on site, that sort of thing. Um, but construction verification, primarily, there are sort of three versions of it, three or three use cases for it at, at this point in time um, that are deliverable. One is using um, photography or laser scanning to uh, effectively to monitor progress during construction. Um, that doesn't require very great accuracy. Um, then the second is using laser scanning that is um, uh, follows the construction process to check the accuracy of the installation. And that is, it's a big challenge for the industry at the moment, um, particularly probably the main use cases in services where you, um, or MEP, where you've got um, lots of different subcontractors and historically um, those subcontractors 
will come on site and sometimes will install things where it's easiest for them to install instead of where the drawings are. Then maybe um, six or eight weeks down, down the line, you might get another subcontractor coming on, trying to install work and finding that there's, uh, there's existing services in the way. And obviously, as, you, as we're getting more off-site construction, manufacturing of um, bigger and bigger bits of kits to go into MEP, um, that can cause some major problems. And you may be trying to deal with the, uh, those problems after the um, original subcontractor has gone off site, maybe they've even been paid for the work. Um, so you're then in a very vulnerable position. Whereas, you know, if you've scanned the work almost as it's done, then uh, then you're in a much better position to um, resolve those problems. And, you know, you've got time to resolve them. Uh, as, uh, as we know, delay mitigation is a, is a major thing in construction. So then the, the third version of that, and that it's almost a sort of, lighter version of verification during construction and that is uh, verification of as-built models and that that's where you're coming on site um, at or near the end of a project um, often you'll do that exercise in two stages one before the ceiling tiles go in or before the ceiling grid goes up to collect the services um, and then when the uh, maybe again when the job is complete and that's about um, making sure that the as-built models that are handed over actually reflect what is uh, what is on site. Um, one of the interesting things, differences between the three, as, as I said, the um, progress monitoring is more about whether something is there at a particular point on site and doesn't require a high degree of accuracy. The verification during construction where you're effectively making sure that things coordinate with each other it's the highest accuracy and requires some significant infrastructure in terms of sort of positional framework and reference points throughout the uh, project. The uh, uh, accuracy of the as-built, if you, the way I always um, suggest that that should be approached, um, because things do get built out of position, you know, the question is how close is close enough and uh, my attitude is because largely at that point you're talking about assisting maintenance in the building. If something is plus or minus 300 millimetres, that's then now that sounds absolutely miles out of position. Um, you're still going to be opening the right ceiling tiles to find the thing that you need to uh, to service or you know or, or or access. And so plus or minus 300 millimetres for um, as built accuracy is. Is probably a sensible way to uh, to approach it. Otherwise, you're going to be, um, you know. But maybe that says more about accuracy of installation than uh, than it does about what clients should be accepting. Well, I was, I mean, I was generally surprised by that number. I mean, I'm, presumably, you're talking about a fairly large development. I, I, what I would say is, construction verification at the moment is still an emerging technology. There are certainly um, a number of the um, blue chip main contractors are now starting to talk about building this into um, the way that they run their sites. Um, all of them are trialing it. And certainly the conversations that I've had as part of the construction verification initiative, there are um, many of them are taking it very seriously because they see it as a, um, a technology which can save them money in very simple terms. In fairness, you know, I, I guess I've been doing construction verification for five years. 
and it's starting to finally look like it might be an early adopter technology which uh, <laughs> actually um <laughs> starts to get beyond break even sooner or later <laughs> well fingers crossed fingers crossed well in terms of automation measured surveys there's a lot of possibilities in uh, relation to your company but then there's opportunities presented by the technology itself so can you give us some clues as to how you go about it i mean what what's the kit that you have mm. what's the what's what's the benefits to an architect so yeah I, I'll, the interesting thing about measured survey is i would say to some extent it is further along the track in terms of certainly software assisted automation of uh, of things you know data collection yes you know we've all seen the videos of spot minis on site um, and there is definitely stuff going on in that um, context, but it isn't by any means a mainstream activity. You know, you don't walk into a building that you've never seen with um, with a couple of spot spot minis. I actually did a business model for um, five spot minis and five Faro scanners because when I was at Sumo, we were uh, scanning a lot of schools. And part of the problem was that the uh, then uh, DFE, they were really bad at procuring surveys during times that schools were accessible. Um, and so you had this sort of situation that you either needed to be able to flood a school with, uh, with staff and surveyors and, you know, and, and, you know, big secondary school, you could be talking 15, 20,000 square meters um, and to scan that in two days is no mean feat you know you need a lot of scanners you not need a lot of people or, or alternatively you could be working at night but obviously that's expensive and um, and public clients don't want to pay to do you know over the odds to do things um but the reality was that at that point in time it was a big challenge to actually get the uh the spots walking around the site um and you know you to purchase that quantity of hardware you know, you're talking about the best part of £650,000. To spend that amount of capital, you need a pipeline of work and the procurement mechanisms weren't there to, um, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that they don't exist. You know, pipeline is one of those things that uh, increasingly clients, especially if you've got a, um, a technology solution, clients are interested in that sort of thing. In terms of then how you go about it, I mean, and the, and the automated technology, which is... Yeah. You know, we've, we've talked about early adopter a lot, but there, there are things which seem to be coming down the pipeline, yep. and I'm sure the technology will get cheaper as well. But you know, like, are you still talking about a block standing in the middle of a room with a laser gun, or are you talking about drone surveys, or this, how's it working? So, in terms of what on site, broadly speaking, most of the time it is a person moving a laser scanner <laughs> and pressing a button. Um, in many ways, you could say that, well, there's there's a great deal of automation going on there already because historically it was um, a guy with a disto or a guy with a total station mapping out the corners of the room and where the door was and, and then moving to the next room and, and doing the same thing. So the benefit in site terms of laser scanning is that uh, um, and photogrammetry is that you're getting massive coverage much more complete coverage it's still not complete coverage because it's a line of sight technology so anything that is in shadow um, you, you're not going to see then with photogrammetry 
certainly the majority of the work that I'm doing at the moment is um, is flown by UAV. They're the skill set, and uh, and I, I don't fly. Got subcontractors who do that. Um, I do a bit of laser scanning, but m- most of my site work subcontracted now. But with the with the UAV, the work is in the planning of those jobs and then um, monitoring the UAV to see that something doesn't go wrong. Broadly speaking, when you're flying effectively, you've got um, the UAV is shooting vertically down. From the moment it leaves the ground, um, it's flying a flight plan. Um, so there's no interaction with the user. You've uh, you've defined how much overlap that you want. The software helps you with that sort of thing. And uh, with Kingston, we flew that uh, double nadir, so vertically down in two directions. Um, and then in four directions with a 45 degree angle, and that gives you more data of the building elevations. Obviously, there's a there is a level that you can go to beyond that. More closely flying um, elevations, um, you've got a a, um, a different sort of level of drone license, um, and uh, and it starts to get very expensive. We we also do quite a lot of uh, data collection with DSLRs from. The ground, and I've got uh, you know I've got a five meter pole that I can push my uh, camera up on for historic work um, and conservation work. You get absolutely stunning, supremely high detailed work, um, and when you combine that with laser scanning as well, you're getting very high detail, very photographically realistic data collection. You're selling yourself <laughs> very good. Yeah. Can I just quickly move on just yeah, to yeah. the um. I was, I was going to say before we do that back in the office again it's uh, registration it's there's a large part of that um that's putting the point clouds together a large part of that is automated um but there's still a, um, a lot of manual checking um i've done a lot of work with a cloud-based registration platform that is coming on um, and really improving quite fast and if you set it in the context that once you start to leverage the cloud you know, something that would take me maybe two or three days to register a thousand scans on the desktop. Vacator is processing a single registration in two hours. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a step change. Is, Likewise, is that, sorry, is that AI processing or is that manual? Well, not, not that I know exactly what their, um, what their model is, but they are effectively, it's statistical number crunching, but using the power of lots of parallel computing where, uh, you know, I've got a pretty powerful desktop, um, but, uh, you know, they've got racks and racks of servers that they can use for that uh, exercise. And again, if you look at photogrammetry, the reconstruction is almost entirely reliant on the quality of your data set um, and we, we do a lot of pre-processing in photoshop to get the most out of the data but the once you set context capture going if the quality of the data is good um, then you should get a very high quality re- um, uh, reconstruction the biggest reconstruction i've done was about started off with about a half a terabyte of raw images took nine hours to process in Photoshop and then uh, nine days to process. And that that is to do with the limitations of my desktop. If I'd processed that on the cloud, which I could have done, I'd probably have got that down to about two, two and a half days, maybe. It's still uh, big, big computing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it would have been three months if you'd done it by hand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in terms of the Building Safety Act, um, obviously there's you know, a big push to, to, to comply uh, of survey information, the golden thread, validation information. Do you, do you find or do you think that your services or this whole idea about actually having accurate finished drawing information is 
part and parcel of what is going to be required of the BSA? There are certainly um, things that can be done in terms of installation. There's a really interesting piece of work that one of our um, members um, has done on fire stopping um, where you've got uh, services going through penetrations in walls. What, what I would say is those fire stopping systems are very reliant, reliant on having uh, known separations between things, you know, so if you are using a particular system, you might need a 50 millimeter separation between two um, services runs as they're going through the sort of fire stopping in the wall. And I, I think that sort of specific task construction verification can really help a great deal in terms of pointing towards those things. In terms of the fire stopping itself, construction verification probably has less of a part to play uh, there, but I think that there is likely to be a role for machine vision in that context, looking for things like badly installed um, fire stopping, fire barriers that have got holes in them, that, that sort of thing, potentially. It's like a, like a clerk of work drawn. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, in that um, one of the things that, uh, and it's a term that I first coined, I think, when I was talking to Arcadis uh, with Simon Rawlings about construction verification, and he coined the phrase um, digital clerk of works. I think it is there. there is a component of that. And I've, I've certainly, I've, I did some work 18, 24 months ago with Wilmot Dixon Interiors about how construction verification on site can help with um, the, the process that they do at the end of a project. Um, which is referred to as technical uh, sign-off and handover. And that basically involves an individual walking around the job, you know, usually a, um, a high-value member of staff walking out around the job and checking that everything that's meant to be there is there. You know, the sort of thing that only somebody um, who knows what they're looking at can do. I think that there is the scope to, in a sense, spread that process out the, the challenge with all of these digital technologies are that they the more integrated they are with the more systems that you have on a site, the better they're going to work. So, for example, if you are, as a main contractor, monitoring and managing what is coming onto your site, what um, materials, what equipment is on site and is going to be installed, if you then see that stuff go into the um, and go into the ceiling, so you know perhaps you've got luminaires, fire detectors, and all, all of that stuff. If you know it's come onto your site, and then you verified that it's installed in the location that you're expecting it to be installed, you you can see that you're starting to get something that might reasonably be a useful golden thread, if that makes any sense, because you're you're tracking the stuff. You're talking about joining together a lot of disparate systems at the moment, you know, because um, logistics at, the, at this point in time isn't tied to technical sign-off and handover, isn't tied to checking that something's been installed in the right place. But you you need to link all of those things. Um, if you can do, then maybe you start to get to a position where you've got this uh, prop real paper trail from a uh, subcontractor's factory being brought onto site, onto being installed at site into sign-off and handover to, uh, to the clients to provide them something with some real surety. I genuinely think if 
we can get those systems uh, linked to each other and it's that is it's simply a technical problem it's not a uh, it's not it's certainly not insurmountable what it requires is somebody who has the desire to do it rather than it being technically feasible or not and, yeah. and then a site team who don't think of it as more of an obstruction than a benefit but well that's true because obviously on-site relations work as much on the basis of human interactions and diplomacy mm. uh, as they do on anything else. And uh, the robocop uh, single-minded condemnation of work might not go down very well sometimes. It's something that I've encouraged main contractors that I've advised about um, implementing construction verification is that you need to try to treat it as a resource that everybody's going to benefit from. It, you know, it goes back to your earlier comment about... Uh, about uh, collaborative teams at the end of the day you have a choice as a main contractor to use uh, construction verification to help you make claims against your subcontractors or you have a choice um, to uh, allow you to use construction verification to help your subcontractors see where there are problems in their installation and solve them before they turn into claims before they turn into delays before they turn into fights you know because at the end of the day everybody knows every single person who's worked on a construction project knows that a smooth running project makes more money and uh, you know <laughs> construction verification having a part a part in that it might it might be slightly different than what we've, what we've just been talking about but you know, the the idea that uh, Elon Musk is asking for a moratorium on AI research and technology because he's slightly worried that we're not up to it yet, uh, or it might be running away from us. I appreciated your digital, you know, site surveys, pattern sheet um, guidances, the different kettle of fish, maybe. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you think that, you know, we need to, it's what we talked about before, that chicken and egg thing, do we need to have an industry which understands this technology before we land the technology on the industry you, you see what i mean i mean is there, does there need to be a little bit more conversation about this than just uh, seeing it as a purely technical exercise i think in my experience most problems that occur on um throughout the design process and this goes back to when i was a designer uh, before i was a measured surveyor they generally come about because people don't understand what each other's capabilities are also they don't understand the knowledge. I, th I think, I mean, measured surveyors are, while some of them are good at talking about the work that they do, broadly speaking, I think most measured survey companies work on the basis that they do a job and they do, they do it to the best of their ability and then they wait for the next quote to come in. They don't try to develop relationships with the contractors and the clients that they're working with. The, the challenge with that is that they never have a seat at the table to have this uh, this conversation about things like digital site uh, survey strategy. Um, the the issue that that generates is people just don't realise. And I'll I'll give you the simplest example of this is that where a design is handed over uh, to a main contractor, even if the designer is novated to the main contractor, um, probably by the point that um, all of the um, I's have been dotted and T's crossed. The main contractor has commissioned a new survey of that building. If the original survey that the design was based on was, uh, was geo-referenced um, using GNSS and the new survey that the main contractor did um, was also uh, geo-referenced uh, geo with GNSS, 
reasonably there's probably going to be a plus or minus 50 millimeter difference not in the accuracy of the data set itself but in the position of the two the the geo-referenced position of the two two data sets and what that means is you've got a contractor's survey that can't be coordinated or can't be any more useful than plus or minus 50 millimeters and if you're if you're thinking about that in the context of a tower in the city of london you can't underwrite the net internal area <laughs> of the project yeah is is that important on on the highest possible level you know the most important metric to your client you can't you can't compare the two you also can't use the designer's model um, without trying to best fit it to the yeah so that that break and that break it, it's really really easy and really cheap to solve you need a network and this is this is what we've done at kingston on all five of, uh, of the sites we've put in permanent control networks um, that are there so that every piece of survey information whether it's done by me or another surveyor every survey is set in the context of that network it's still on uh, ordnance survey grid as best as uh, you know as best as the industry can position it but the whole point is that those um, permanent reference points are fixed points that and they're very accurate you know rick's band d probably rick's band a um, which is you know plus or minus four millimeters you know that's that's incredible accuracy so every piece of survey information in future that's collected on kingston sites is going to be correctly positioned to itself in exactly the same way if at the very beginning of a project a client if coordination is important to the client and they are the first person perhaps the client advisor is commissioning a survey maybe even before the architect is, is on board um, if they put in that permanent control network and then plan to hand over the permanent connect control network and it's you know it's good practice for surveyors to uh, to check the permanent the integrity of the permanent control network at each stage but broadly speaking the cost is tiny the value across the project because it enables things like really accurate construction verification that you've got this very low cost relatively speaking thing which people might at the beginning of a pro project think why why are we doing that but what it enables is throughout a project if you um, enable it being passed to the designer perhaps when they're commissioning more detailed surveys and then the main contractor when they are um, commissioning their surveys perhaps to check um, the designer's information or maybe even to check existing models that have been uh, passed on to them um, you know at every stage it's saving money and making one stage of the project more comparable to a later stage of the project very good well look that's that's the end robert uh, and, and i have to say thank you very much need for explaining in a highly technical subject uh, to a complete technical simpleton and if i got it hopefully the audience will fully understand it uh, much better than they would at the start so <laughs> Thanks to Robert Klaschke at Everbuilt. Remember, that's E-V-R-B-I-L-T dot com. My name is Austin Williams. Please subscribe to our archive if you have the time. It's on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and listen to more interviews with equally informative guests. So thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Professional Practice Podcasts. Goodbye.